I'm Miranda Wakeman. Um, I've been doing church from home, but I do miss all of you. So um, I'm doing the scripture reading for this week, which is from Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he laid his hands on them and went away. Thanks, Miranda. At home, where's the camera? There's the camera. Thanks, Miranda. Um, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. I'm Jace. I'm part of the pastoral team here. We're going to be talking about this passage. So, yeah, if you have a Bible, open it up. Um, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll get started. God, thank you so much for this wonderful day. Thank you that we are officially into fall. There are leaves on the grass outside. We're so grateful um, for where we live, and um, I'm thankful for each person here. I'm thankful for everything that you've already done this morning and what you're um, going to do in the next 45 minutes. Um, and today I want to pray a special blessing over the kids downstairs, for Johnny, over the leaders. Um, and I just ask for an outpouring of um, your favor upon them and upon this message. Use me and submit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this is a famous little passage, Matthew 19. Um, it's the perfect little story to be illustrated for a Precious Moments Bible, the cover, for Precious Moments Bible. <laughs> um, and that's totally fine. It is a very precious moment. Um, but if you're anything like me, that Precious Moments image is sort of ingrained in you so much that when you read a story of Jesus saying, let the little children come to me, what it means is like something like, um, have like childlike faith or something. And then that's it. And you kind of move on. That's cute. I'm glad that's in the Bible. Um, uh, and to be clear, I think Jesus does speak to childlike faith. That's, the story is at least about that. Um, but in this series, we're talking about Jesus um, loving, loving, his, loving our neighbor. And so I kind of wanted to explore the relationship of Jesus and kids more thoroughly because it's one of the relational aspects we're exploring. And I wanted to explore in context. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, turns out, let the little children come to me, that very famous line, falls smack dab in the middle of a larger block of te Jesus' teachings in Matthew's gospel, um, which spans chapters 18, 18 through 20. So if you have a Bible that actually highlights Jesus' words in red, how many of you have, one, do you have some of those Bibles? Okay, some, yeah, that's great. Um, in Matthew's gospel especially, you'll see you're in the thick of a red, a red section. Um, and so if you take the time sometime later, you don't need to do it right now, and you flip through the Gospel of Matthew, um, you'll soon discover that Matthew has intentionally designed his book along sort of a five-fold teaching pattern. Um, the Gospel opens up with a prologue about Jesus' birth. It's going to end with a finale of his um, death and resurrection. But then right there in the middle, the life and teachings, the ministry of Jesus, the huge middle section, um, there's just this clear pattern to it. And if you have one of those Bibles, you can actually see it if you flip through quickly. Um, Matthew has intentionally designed um, the gospel to sort of go like this. So I just, I, it's easier to just show you a picture. I spent time on PowerPoint to just give it to you an, an image. So you'll see um, this is how it works. In, in um, chapters 1 through 4, 3 through 4, you have, this is, um, you can go to the next slide right here. Jesus is on the move. 
He's getting baptized. There's a, this is part of the narrative. There's a story. And then you get to five through seven, and it's red. It's all red again. It's just teaching. It's the most famous teaching. Five through seven, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And so the Sermon on the Mount is, if you can go back one more, the Sermon on the Mount is informed by the narrative you just read. If you want the context for that teaching, you got to read three and four. It informs the next one. Then Matthew launches into the next bit, and you can go to the next slide right here, and you'll see that this is how the gospel works. You have a story for a couple chapters, and then you have a huge teaching again. Another story, huge teaching. Another story, huge teaching. Another story, huge teaching. It's this five-fold pattern. Um, there's all sorts of things you can discover about why Matthew does this. He's echoing the five books of Moses. He's presenting Jesus as a new teacher. Jesus is like on these hills teaching like Moses. And there's a clear intentionality. But the whole point that I'm trying to make is that by the time we come to this little quote, let the little children come to me, we're in the fourth block, so one, two, three, four, of the teaching, and we just finished the fourth set of stories in chapter 14 through 17. So next slide. Um, and which is just a long, that's just a long explanation to help make sense of this important question, which is, what's the context of that teaching? <laughs> that's just, I could have just asked you that, but there you go. What's the context of this teaching, which is what we should always be asking when we get to Jesus' words and the rest of the Bible. So we're going to zoom in on this fourth section and lay, imagine laying it horizontally. So that's what this is right here. Um, so we don't have time to read the entire preceding narrative. Sorry. Sorry. Um, but to just remind you of the climactic narrative moment, right before this teaching launches, there's sort of three things that happen right before we get into this big block of teaching. Um, turn with me, if you will, to Matthew chapter 16, um, verses, verse 13. We'll start in 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. So Jesus' ministry is still young, and people don't know exactly who he is. He goes, okay, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, well, you're the Christ, um, the, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. <clears throat> so, well, we'll get to it in a minute. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What is he even talking about? Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke's account of the ministry of Jesus, this story plays such a crucial role in the flow of the narrative. So it serves as this transition point in every single one of those gospels where the mystery and sort of the weight of Jesus's identity is being gathered up and it's starting to click in the minds of the disciples and um, their vision begins to focus and you're, you're kind of on the journey with them focusing. And you get to this part where Peter says, you're the Christ. So Christ um, is the Greek word Christos, which is just a translation of the Hebrew word Mashiach or Messiah. You're the anointed one, the, uh, the anointed one of the Jewish people. Um, so Jesus, you are the anointed son of David who will bring about the prophetic promises made to God's covenant people. This is the confession that Peter says. 
And so this is a really big deal moment for the gospel authors. The scene plays out sort of cinematically. There's, listen to Jesus' words. It's like crackling with electricity of power. There's this like cosmic weight to what Peter just said, and we're not even sure what it is yet in the story. Um, But when Peter finally verbalizes the truth, Jesus does not shy away from explaining that they are like seeing into the heavens. There's this reality at play. And so when one recognizes the Messiah for who he is, one sees his power and authority and his desire to impart that power and authority. Jesus said, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are yours. What the heck? So um, this is the scene. The Messiah is on the move, and his presence is one of glory and power and authority. And so I came up with a really dumb picture to show you this. Next slide. If you know the story, you know what happens um, right after. Actually, can, let's go back one more. I want you to just, uh, sorry, a couple more back. I'm like, I'm flying, and I think we're a little off. Go back one more. There it is. Okay, Messiah. I want you to picture like thunder clouds and authority and lightning bolts. This is the idea. Jesus said, I'm giving you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And they're, they're feeling the weight of this. So if you know the story, though, you know what happens right after in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Every gospel author is crucial to tell you. It's crucial that they tell you this. Right after Jesus affirms their grasp of this cosmic identity, um, you get this story. So this is Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And then on the third day, be raised. So um, this all-powerful, anointed, promise-keeping son of David, son of God hero, is about to die. It's the it's like every single gospel tells you that right after they give you that big image. And so they're very clear. They want, there's a disconnect in the narrative that's intentional. We're supposed to feel like Peter. Um, what does it mean that Jesus is the Messiah? So next image they're picturing this cosmic reality, and then Jesus is like, nope, I'm going to die. And you're like, well, what is it? You're supposed to feel, you're, we're with Peter right now. It's the idea. I thought you were, I thought we have like cosmic authority right now, and you're going to die? So look, Peter makes his choice, which Messiah he thinks Jesus should be. You know this part? He makes his choice. Read this next line. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Yikes. So Peter makes it very clear. He wants the power and authority, the Rock'em Sock'em Messiah. That's what he wants. Yeah, we want that conquering king. Straight up. We're underneath the thumb of Rome. Like, do what you're supposed to do. We've read our Old Testament. God's going to make us top dog again or something, right? If we're interpreting it along those lines. Um, But Jesus just calls him Satan when he says that. So, and here's the thing. We can all snicker at Peter and pretend we fully understand Jesus here. But the gospel authors are really trying to present you. Yeah, this is the thing. They're really trying to present you with attention in the narrative. You're supposed to be that sucked into it that you 
contemplate, wait, did I not just hear Jesus say all authority and power and glory and here's the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Like it's, did I not just get that cosmic vision? And then did he not just follow it up with something about death? You're supposed to feel confused. And look, so that's called a plot tension and they don't resolve it for you. They muddy the waters. You know what the next story is? Immediately following, um, look, look at this next little bit in Matthew 16, 24. So Jesus told his disciples, yeah, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So what does this sound like? The conquering Rock'em Sock'em Messiah or like the dying one? You're like, oh, this kind of sounds like the dying one. Yeah? This is the next teaching. It's kind of a bummer. But then look, look at what immediately follows this. Jesus says, for the son of man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he's going to repay each person according to what he's done. Truly, I'm telling you straight up, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. Like, oh, there's the electricity again. I kind of like this Messiah. Yeah. Back and forth. So you're supposed to feel this. It's a real problem for the disciples. They don't know what to make of him. And um, so, sorry, this is great. Right after this, let's do one more. Right after this, to make it more confusing, the next story is the transfiguration. You familiar with that? Where Jesus, um, right after he tells them he's going to suffer and die, he takes them up onto a mountain and he radiates with blinding white light in like a category five hurricane and scares the living daylights out of them. And they get this sense that they're in front of the all-powerful Messiah. So it confuses them again. They're so puzzled. And this, by the way, is the narrative context of what we're about to explore today. We're just coming off all of this confusion. The disciples are reeling, trying to figure out who the heck this guy is. And so um, before we get into it, I want to just um, take you to the end of the teaching section. So that red block, I want you to go to the end and go to Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 20. It's too soon. <laughs> All right. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say that these two sons of mine are to, are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm to drink? They said to him, yeah, yeah, we're down. And he said to them, you will drink my cup. But to sit at my right hands and to sit at my left, that's, that's not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Keep going. One more. But Jesus called them to him and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So what's, what's this little teaching about? This is about a mom who wants to see that her two sons sit firmly in places of power and glory and authority, like any mom would. Yeah? Favor my sons, Lord. And what's Jesus interested in talking about? Something about drinking a really intense cup and becoming a slave. It's a great shift in subject, (laughs) Jesus. Okay, so now... um, Go ahead and go to the next slide, and we'll, let's situate this in the larger picture. And hopefully you can just sort of see what Matthew's doing right here. This whole thing begins with a narrative about um, this tension of how we're processing power and authority. And then it ends with this mom who wants this for her sons. And you're just, what is, and um, the whole point is that we're being forced to ask a question What does it mean that the Son of Man has and gives authority? Or more specifically, what does authority and power look look like for Jesus? What kind of authority and power is he interested in? Is it like the rock'em sock'em? Or is it like this, he's going to die? And so here's what's amazing about this. This is all just a big buildup. Guess who are all over these red chapters? Children. They're just peppered throughout. And so I want to dive into the first that you see them, chapter 18. We're going to dive into the beginning of the red section, teaching, and go to chapter 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Calling to him a child, he put him in the middle of them, and he said, I'm telling you the truth. Unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Stop. Before I teach on it, why don't you just let those words hit you? Unless you become like little children, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. What he says next is not anything, it's not less intense. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to, who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a, let's just say a great millstone fastened around his neck and then be drowned in the depth of the sea. Thus says the Lord. So <laughs> it's like, let's just hear these words afresh, shall we? First, he just says, become like children or else. And then, here's what he, Jesus, he could have just said, or you'd be better off if you were dead. But he doesn't. He's a brilliant teacher. So you know what he does? He just, he harnesses hyperbole right now. Yeah? He says, no, 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 it it would be like you take a giant millstone and wear it like a dog collar, and then sail out right above the Marianas Trench, and then you slowly sink to the depth of the sea. That would be better for you than if you hurt mess with one of the little kids. So that's how Jesus feels about kids. And you're supposed, I mean, you're supposed to feel it. (laughs) It's such, it's so flipping intense. So what follows, (laughs) what follows, man, Jesus is, what follows are teachings that you're really familiar with. But I want you to bear in mind that kids are all around his feet while he's teaching. So what you have 
Next time, so we don't have time to read them all, but there's a slide to just show you. Um, after Jesus tells people they'd be better off at the bottom of the ocean than messing with kids, he then leads them into a teaching about temptation, where he says, cut off your hand, or pluck, pluck out your eye if it causes you to sin. Again, expert in hyperbole. And he says, the, it, the next is the famous parable of the lost sheep, leave the 99. You know that one? So sorry if you're new. I, I don't have time to teach through all of it, so I'm just hoping you're kind of familiar because of like, I don't know, pop culture or something. Then he moves on to two little, <laughs> that's probably not in pop culture or whatever. <laughs> Maybe you've just been around a church. I don't know. Okay, then he moves into two little teachings about sinning against each other and the issue people have with repenting and then forgiving. He just, two, two little stories there. And then it leads into a, a, a moment where uh, there's a, he, he teaches on hair splitting the law because of your hard hearts, which leads to divorce. And people's tendency to try to like hair split the law. And, Moses, and he talks about why Moses had to do stuff like that. It's really complicated. And then he ends it with teachings of children at the very end. And children are sprinkled throughout. Just read it and underline how many times he mentions kids. In between all the teachings. So um, it's worth just pausing and reflecting right here. This whole thing began with a tension about what power and authority looks like because I believe Jesus knew that this was going to be one of the most significant, if not the most significant struggle for his followers. Human beings are drawn to power, like mosquitoes to lights, just, and it kills them when they get close. This is a major theme that runs right through the Old Testament and the New Testament, and welcome to today, right on through human history. We just, we celebrate the powerful. Um, Even those who reserve their strongest critiques for the powerful, they still gaze lovingly at just different kinds of power. We're just drawn to it. What we love is when, what we love the most is when the elite look like us. We love when the elite look like us and do what we want them to do because we feel like we have a share in their power, in their control. We feel like, we we feel like we get to control the world or the country or whatever when people like us are doing what we just want them to do. It's a, we're drawn to it. Um, But Jesus' agenda for all the world to see is to take his disciples through such a subversive journey into the heart of God that they cannot help but see their paradigms for power totally flipped, just totally flipped. So I want you to just contemplate, oh man, just contemplate Peter's confession with me. Peter confesses Jesus' identity, that he is the all-powerful Messiah, and that the next thing, and then the next thing he wants he wants um, to do is assume what that power ought to look like. That's what Peter does. So it's so striking, you guys. It is so striking that when Peter attempts to ascribe to Jesus position and privilege of a king, the power and might of a conqueror, the wealth and influence he deserves, when he wants Jesus to champion the nation, to rise up, to go to war, to win, Once and for all, Jesus looks at him, stares a hole right through the back of his head, and he says, that power like that is satanic. That's what Jesus says. 
Except he says it even more intensely. He just calls him Satan. Don't tell me, Peter, that the way of the Messiah is the way of the kingdoms of this world. He's going to talk about that in the Gospel of John. The way of the Messiah is suffering and death and picking up your cross. Don't tell me it isn't. And if power and control and influence are all you want, I know a serpent you can talk to. And that's not my game. So after he says that, <laughs> he calls forward a kid. And he, um, man, he launches into his teaching, constantly drawing everyone's gaze back to the little ones. And so because he does that so often throughout this teaching section, you start to wonder, hopefully the disciples are getting it. Right now, Jesus' favorite people are kids. Um, he's literally been using them as examples of goodness and humility and vulnerability and trust. And so this is what's crazy about the passage we opened up with that Miranda read. By the time we get to it, in Matthew 19, when a bunch of parents bring their kids to Jesus, um, we start to think, oh, good, here's Jesus' favorite kind of people. He'll probably have something good to say. And what's funny is the disciples interrupt, and they say, hey, get those kids out of here. He doesn't have time for that. It is such a struggle. It is such a struggle for grown-ups to, to um, um, humbly and with vulnerability let go of power. They just can't. We salivate at the siren tune of influence and control. That haunting melody, that lie is all over our politics. It's in our religion. It's in our homes. And we must begin to see it for what it is. This obsession to be in charge or something and do it our way. <clears throat> in 1962, a charismatic influential, powerful figure began to rise in American culture. Um, and his domination in the country was unprecedented. Nobody saw him coming. It was alarming how much his celebrity grew, how wide his fame spread. And it is jaw-dropping to see just how much authority people ascribed to this man. His influence started on TV on October 15th of that year. And then from there, he took off like wildfire, accumulating very quickly a following of millions. His name? Fred Rogers. Gotcha. Sometimes our attraction to power and authority is a good thing, if it's the right kind of power and authority. So in preparation for this sermon, I just decided to cozy up in the sweater of Fred Rogers because... I don't know anyone who disputes how much he valued children. I wanted to get inside of his mind a bit, and I've been there before. My wife and I got on a Mr. Rogers kick not too long ago, but man, this week I wanted to dig and got blown away. Got blown away. If you haven't done the deep dive, treat yourself. For those who don't know, Mr. Rogers was the host of his own children's show, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, um, and this is where he'd teach children all about life. And when I say teach them about life, I mean he bravely waded into waters that some of us just bristle at. He talked about death and divorce. He talked about abuse and mass violence. He talked about beauty and goodness and creativity and kindness. And above all, he talked about love to kids. 
And Fred Rogers, for those of you that also don't know, was unapologetically a man fiercely devoted to Jesus. Um, in, in 1998, Esquire magazine um, hired a man named Tom Juno to write a story on Fred Rogers. Um, Juno was a brilliant journalist. He had earned a reputation for not just being a good journalist, but a bold and kind of gritty writer. Um, he, he was immensely talented, but you just didn't want to be on the receiving end of his investigative journalism. <laughs> um, he pulled no punches. And so there was actually a lot of hesitation from people um, around Fred when Esquire magazine pitched the idea to do this story on Fred um, because they had read Juno's writings and they were nervous that he was going to just paint the Fred in a weird light. And so everyone around Fred was incredibly protective of Fred because they loved him. <laughs> uh, but Fred was so intrigued by Juno. And he agreed to the project. And then what came out on November 1st, 1998, was this cover story, Can You Say Hero? So it's a 15-page magazine story, single-spaced. Um, but I read the whole thing this week. I found a free copy online. And um, a couple years ago, they actually made a movie about this whole story. It's worth, it's worth a watch if you haven't seen it. It's great. Um, but I want to just tell you, I want to just point out a few things about what I learned about the character of Fred Rogers. Um, first of all, Tom Juno was a skeptic of Mr. Rogers, um, and he's very clear about that. And so he launches into this project to follow this man around and figure out what makes him tick, hopefully to figure out if there's some skeletons in that closet full, filled with sweaters. Um, <laughs> uh, but what he found, actually, um, and these are his words, not mine, is that he was met with grace. And neither he nor Fred attempted to ever define that word, but they used it. Um, but Juno's very clear. Fred pursued and loved him in a way that totally disarmed him and changed his trajectory as a journalist forever. What he would go on to do was totally altered by the course of Fred Rogers. <laughs> oh. And without it, man, okay, so without a doubt, Fred Rogers is known for his love of children. He saw in them the dignity of a whole person. A whole human being was right there. And he spoke to them with sincere interest. Those closest to him said he worried about nothing else but kids. Every camera angle, every line of the script, every musical number, every guest that came on the show, he would spend way too long wondering, is that going to like serve the kids best? Just agonized over it. Fred kept a prayer journal with thousands of names of people he would meet over the years. And every day he would get up at 5.30. Everyone that knew his routine he never broke his routine. Every day he was up at 5.30 to intercede for every single name in his book. Not everyone every day. He would work through it systematically because it was so huge. Then he would go and work out, eat a good breakfast, and get to work. The article tells, man, the article tells of countless adults, you guys, who would claw through crowds to see Fred when he would go speak at places just to ask him for a hug. Adults would ask him for a hug. And then they would shout things like, you were like a father to me, or you were my childhood, or you changed my childhood. And so it was weird because Fred was strangely and uniquely authoritative to some of these people. And the stories are unbelievable. Fred would expect something and people would just jump up and do it. They would just want to do it. So there's actually, there's, it's funny, there's a story of him receiving an Emmy. And instead of giving a speech, he got up. And he told the room to just sit quietly in 10 seconds of silence and be grateful for the people that got them there. 
And then he lifted his watch to look at the clock. And what's funny is when the clock started, a lot of the people in the room like giggled and laughed. Like, oh, there goes Fred doing a classic Mr. Rogers thing. But at about second three, you could hear a pin drop and the room actually got so quiet because it became very clear everyone trusted Fred. He was authoritative in the room. He had authority. And they did it. And by second 10, people were bawling at the Emmys because he paused the whole thing and they trusted him to do so. Um, when he raised, uh, sorry, so um, with his power, Fred chose to focus on, a, on a, his attention on children. So there are so many testimonials of how things would come to a grinding halt or schedules were just thrown off because Fred thought that one kid deserved a little bit more time, just another hug or something. So I want to share with you one story from the article. Um, and then we can come back and we can talk about Jesus and our own precious kids here at our church. There was a little boy with cerebral palsy who suffered from severe self-hatred. Um, because of his condition, he was um, horrifically abused in childhood. And consequently, he developed a disgust with himself, just this little boy, convinced that he was defiled and um, not just because of his disability, um, but that he had somehow invited the abuse. So that little boy would hurt himself violently and he would isolate himself and it was sort of into that storm that Mr. Rogers came on the TV. And so slowly, very slowly, this little boy developed a love for Mr. Rogers who through the television screen <laughs> somehow made him feel like he should live another day. And um, of course, it became the boy's fondest dream to just meet Mr. Rogers. But the boy lived in California and Fred lived in Philadelphia. And so there was no chance until the show scheduled a segment to be filmed at the California Zoo um, where Fred would interact with a gorilla named Coco who was obsessed with Fred Rogers. <laughs> this gorilla like couldn't wait to watch it and like gave Mr. Rogers a hug when he came. It's unbelievable. Like, it doesn't feel real, but it is, it's true. Anyway, so the show organized this special, like, uh, um, uh, like a meet and greet through a special foundation where this little boy was invited um, and other kids with disabilities. And um, when that day came and this little boy came in contact with Fred for the first time, he was so nervous and so filled with shame coming face to face with Fred that he panicked and he started to hurt himself and freak out and caused this huge scene because he was so filled with shame. And his mother actually had to take him out of the room. And it was this big old scene. Um, but as the event wrapped up, Fred insisted that he stayed and wait for this little boy. Um, and he waited, uh, they waited a long time. Um, because Fred kept telling everyone, I, need to I want something from this kid. I need to ask him for something. They're like, what do you need from this kid? Eventually things calmed down. Fred got close to this kid and he said, would you do something for me? Would you pray for me? And through his little computer, which spoke for him, the boy who had always been the object of other people's prayers, the object of pity, was now given the dignity to pray for someone else, and he said he would try. Here's the kicker. When Tom Juno interviewed Fred about this story, he said, that was really smart of you. 
you um, spoke to that kid's desire for purpose, um, and you helped him by giving him that responsibility. Fred was genuinely puzzled. And he said, Tom, heavens no. I did not ask for his prayers for him. I asked for me. I asked him because anyone who has gone through challenges like that must be close to God. I asked him because I wanted his intercession. (laughs) Fred did not bristle at the idea that the Messiah's power was found in suffering and sacrifice and compassion and grace. So in our block of teaching in Matthew, there's a little section there near the story of the lost sheep where Jesus says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven... Their angels see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Um, Now, that's not to say that everything a a child does is like anointed by angels or something. We all know. We've been around kids. (laughs) But Jesus' invitation is very clear. In their humility, in their vulnerability, in their wide-eyed wonder and natural proclivity to trust, their angels are able to stand before the Father, whatever that even means. I don't know. So Jesus says, love them well. Invest in them. You know what? Learn from them and become like them. If you do this, you'll begin to understand what I mean by authority and power. So this is why it pays dividends to study the Bible and understand these passages in context. So hopefully it's more clear now. This is more than just childlike faith. In this context, the disciples, and hopefully the readers of Matthew by now, are really beginning to examine two things. First, how are we like Peter in our relationship to power? What sorts of things do we want Jesus to do for us? We want to be in control whether we admit it or not. We just do. We want to have control of our private lives, but we also want our cities and our countries to be governed in the way that suits us. And we want pastors to message in such a way that we feel proud to call this our home church. But we don't want them to say too much or go too far in one way. And we get anxious about these things. We want to see those who think and act like us or achieve goals and values we have in places of power or celebrity or whatever. And while those instincts are not inherently bad, obviously it was Jesus himself who encouraged us to pray that his kingdom comes here and now, and that means praying for the goodwill to be done in places of power. We're so, some of us are so desperate to see righteousness, and Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for that. Yes, and amen. I don't want to diminish that we're drawn to power in a good way sometimes, but it gets warped. And Jesus is going to draw children before us and say, listen, do yourself a favor. Do some reflecting right now. (laughs) Your heart is hardened, and it's far more interested in control than you realize. You're far more anxious, you're far more fearful, and you're closed off. You're far more closed off than this little one. And you don't actually have good instincts on what my kingdom looks like when you pray for it to come sometimes. So reading about the children of the kingdom in context invites us to first evaluate our relationship with power, but it's not just that. He's also zealous for the lives and dignity and worth of kids. 
They're not just illustrations in his teaching lesson. He cares about them. And he clearly invests in them and loves them because he sees their worth and their value. And in addition to all of that, he sees in them an example. There was one interesting quote, another interesting quote in Juno's article when he described Fred Rogers' voice. This is what he said. That voice, his voice, the famous one, the unmistakable one, the televised one, the voice dressed in sweater and sneakers, the soft one, the reassuring one, the curious and expository one. Listen to this. The sly voice that sounds adult to the ears of children and childish to the ears of the adult. Fred did not just pay attention to children because they were worthy of his time. In more ways than one, he actually sat at their feet and learned to imitate them because he understood that they are like teachers if you're listening. And he would disarm adults by how simply he would pursue and love them like a kid. And this is how much dignity he gave them. And when Jesus sets off on a mission to establish his authority, to teach on his kingdom, to advance his kingdom, he sets up the least of these and kids as examples of what this authority looks like. There's no mistaking it for the kind of power we idolize today. It's so different. So he says, don't confuse it. He invites his disciples to humble themselves, to bend low, to look into their eyes and discover somehow what real power looks like. Your kind of authority, dear grown-ups, is hard-hearted. It's about control. It's anxious, it's conspiratorial, it's corrupt, and it's blind to corruption. It's violent and it's ugly, and yet it glitters like gold. My kind of authority, speaking like Jesus, is vulnerable. It's repentant, it's humble, it's wide-eyed with wonder. It does not need to control because it trusts in the Father. 